let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, for this for this day, for this um, for this church, for uh, for your grace, for all that we receive from you, we give you great and humble thanks. Work uh, in us now through your through your word and through through some clips uh, to speak and clog our ears and uh, and sharpen our eyes. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, so we're picking up a uh, second of a four-part series. Matt Stokes, as I mentioned last week. Hey, all. Um, hey, Clay. Um, Matt Stokes will be teaching next week, which I really appreciate, as I'm going to be um, coming back from North Carolina uh, in this middle part of, 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 uh, of the series called Got at Work, and it's less about having to do with, with our vocations, how we, we spend our weeks, um, trading our time for money, as it were, and more about where we... Uh, expect to see God, where we expect to hear God, how we expect uh, the mechanism of God's activity in, in this world, uh, in, in this time, in the tick, 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 tickness of our own life. Um, it's that idea, where we expect to see God working, where we expect to use in some of the language that's often used, where is God present, where is he moving, um, where is he blessing. That's a, that's a loaded word, I think, that can take some unpacking, typically when we hear you know, with the Lord, we just, we're talking about this movie today, um, that the Lord has blessed us indeed. We usually think that He's given us something good, something that's enjoyable, something that makes us feel better, something that that uh, that improves us. And yeah, great. Um, and you know, I, I think one one thing I'm trying to do with this series is just beg that question a little bit. Is that is that is that too small of an idea of what it means to be blessed? Is that too small of an idea to think that God works? In our um, in our successes, that God uses our our very best. That God uses, you know, we, we I think popularly, and even I, you know, even I, you know, even we um, who who may believe differently. Um, sometimes when the chips are down, instinctively, I would say, which means that the human heart wants to say that God takes my my natural gifts. Um, what I'm good at, and that's what he uses. And that's not true. That's my, that's my card on the table. That's not true. Even as I, although I profess with my mouth that he uses my weaknesses, um, when you point a gun at me, or if you wake me up at 3 in the morning and shake me and say, what does God use? I'm going to say, my gifts. My gifts, of course. He uses my successes. He uses what's good about me. He uses how I could be helpful. And that's, um, I'm, I'll leave it here. Let's just... Say, is that too small a way? Um, in J.B. Phillips' old way, are we putting God in a box? So that's kind of the idea with the theme, God at work. How does he do this? What does it mean to be blessed, et cetera, and so forth? Next, um, next week, as I mentioned, Matt's going to teach. In the week following, I'll wrap it up probably with uh, using a lot of clips. Um, Duncan kind of smelled me out saying, you know, oh, you, you know, don't have much to say, so you're watching a bunch of movies. And that's, um, that's partly true. Um, <laughs> But, as it were, you know, going over again and again and again. Um, uh, staying in Robert Redford's vein, we're going to watch part of a, a good bit of A River Runs Through It today, his, a movie that he, he narrated and, uh, and directed, and then Ordinary People as well, I think 1980, um, which he also directed. We'll look at some of that in two weeks along with The Next Files, which, to my knowledge, Robert Redford had nothing to do with. Um, but we'll see. Um, so, uh, scripture today from Romans 7, not the part that I usually read or think about when I, when I speak of Romans 7. It's earlier in the chapter. Here's what I want to move away from. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all types of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. There's a lot to say about this passage that I'm not going to say, that we won't say today, but, but some ideas. Um, uh, you, also have died through the, uh, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. This idea of, of belonging to another, of being dead to the law, that the, uh, whatever that means, that the commandment which came and was the, uh, the mechanism of my death, um, in a weird way, that's good news. Because in so doing, it brings me to the end of myself and it opens me up to belonging to another. There's a second idea that's also part in this. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. So there's a place where sin has its final ending. That there's a point of freedom. And that's going to be a, really emph- a real emphasis in the movie. That there's a point of freedom where sin, uh, where this place apart from the law, sin can lie dead. For I once, verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came to life. Sin came alive, and I died. And so we're back and forth between this life and death, death uh, alive to sin, dead to, uh, dead to freedom, or dead to sin, alive to freedom. So bondage, freedom, we're right in here. River runs through it, um, which we're not going to quite look at. We're going to go back to the Brene Brown piece. Uh, a river runs through it. Many ways to look at this this film, or it's also a novella. We've got a copy of it in the bookstore. Um, it's great. Um, it really is a fine novella. I think it's just over 100 pages. It makes a great read on a plane. That's where I read it the first time. Um, uh, it's a lot of things, but I think it's a parable about freedom and bondage. Um, it's 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 definitely got sub-Christian themes. I don't. It doesn't have the last word. It's not finally redemptive, um, but uh, but it's good. It's really good. Um, so it's a parable about freedom. And bondage. Before we get there, um, look again at the same clip we looked at last week with this, this social worker, um, Brene Brown is her name, where she's looking at vulnerability and, and somebody, I can't remember who it was last week, kind of brought up, is there a possibility of a continuum? A shame, which she defines as the fear of connection, um, is that all there is. Um, and we, uh, uh, somebody put forward the idea, well, maybe there's pride as the alternate side of it, where there's also a sense of disconnectedness. Uh, and I think that's probably true, because we're going to look at this and then think about Brad Pitt's character, the younger brother, um, within the, 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 the parable of the two sons, um, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of, of, uh, of the loving father, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's definitely a, a parable about a father and, and an older brother and a younger brother, um, where is the disconnection in the family and how does it fit in with what Brene Brown is kind of putting forth in this. So, some ideas again to kind of look for in her, um, in her piece, uh, that God is not at work in those places that we like best about ourselves. Um, she says, I don't think she's coming at it from a Christian point of view per se, that shame is the unnamed thing that unravels connection, that shame is the fear of disconnection, 
there is, is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, I won't be worthy of connection. In order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. And then she uses the phrase excruciating vulnerability. Now, anybody who knows anything about 12-step programs are going to be really familiar with that idea of excruciating vulnerability. And I also think it's a great leap into the movie, the one clip we're not going to see, in fact, but we'll talk about it, where there's one point at which Brad Pitt's character um, is, uh, is vulnerable. Um, and that's where, well, we'll point that out later. Excruciating has the root crucis, which means cross. And so it's a crucified vulnerability. I think you could also say that fairly. So, so anyway, let's look at Brene Brown and then make a comment or two, and then we'll, uh, we'll move forward. So where I started was with connection. Do you mind hitting those, Trent? All three of them, thanks. Ten years, what you realize ah. is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is, this is what it's all about. It doesn't matter whether you talk to people who work in social justice and mental health and abuse and neglect. What we know is that connection, the ability to feel connected, is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired. It's why we're here. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to start with connection. Well, you know that, that situation where you get an evaluation from your boss and she tells you 37 things that you do really awesome and one thing that you can't get you know, an opportunity for growth. Um, and all you can think about is that opportunity for growth, right? Well, apparently this is the way my work went as well because when you ask people about love, they tell you about heartbreak. When you ask people about belonging, they'll tell you the most excruciating experiences of being excluded. And when you ask people about connection, the stories they told me were about disconnection. So very quickly, really about six weeks into this research, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that I didn't understand or had never seen. And so I pulled back out of the research and thought, I need to figure out what this is. And it turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection. The things I can tell you about it, it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. What underpinned this shame, this I'm not good enough, which we all know that feeling, I'm not blank enough, I'm not thin enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. Um, the thing that underpinned us was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. And you know how I feel about vulnerability. I hate vulnerability. And so I thought, this is my chance to beat it back with my measuring stick. I'm going in, I'm going to figure this stuff out, I'm going to spend a year, I'm going to totally deconstruct shame, I'm going to understand how vulnerability works, and I'm going to outsmart it. So I was ready, and I was really excited. As you know, it's not going to turn out well. Um. <laughs> and then she goes on, of course. Um, so, just... Putting it out there, you know, I'm probably going to use this clip um, each of my three three weeks just to kind of move away from it. Uh, shame, 
Um, well, connection first. Connection, whether neurobiologically, philosophically, theologically, existentially, whatever ad, ad, adverb and adjective you want to give it. Um, connection. You know, the reason that we're here. Um, and I think that's a true statement coming out of the, 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 the doctrine of Imago Dei, that we're made in the image of God. That primarily means, means we're, we're made for relationship, to relate to Him, to relate to ourselves, to relate to, to the world, to relate especially to each other. That that's what that's what matters. That's what changes us. That's that's the agent of of of, of the world, both the world that's fallen and the world that will be redeemed. When um, on heaven as in earth, uh, uh, all things and all manner of things shall be made well. It has to do with relationships, and so that's what we're made for, and that's what everything that's what's screwed up. That's what's screwed up. Um, Shame, which is certainly experienced by Adam and Eve in the garden, um, as soon as uh, as the the apple was eaten and then turned and, and handed to Adam, who was right there, and he ate too, and then both of their eyes were opened. They were immediately ashamed because they had uh, this disconnection from God. Um, Brad Pitt's character, and I'm assuming a lot of us have seen the movie, and if not, it's, it's you'll, you'll 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 certainly know Brad Pitt. And you'll see him. I'm not sure he fits exactly this idea that, that shame is what's driving him and keeping him disconnected from his family because it's plainly a portrait of a disconnected family, of, uh, of the youngest son who somehow refuses help, who refuses, refuses to be helped. Um, and it's the parable of his bondage to, to be hell-bent, probably quite literally, uh, to be hell-bent to his own destruction, bound to Montana, as we're going to see, bound to be disconnected, bound to, uh, to remaining isolated and alone. Uh, is there shame there? There probably is. Um, the way his character is developed, it's mostly pride, um, that he has an inner strength. And we're going to see him as an eight-year-old child refusing to eat his bowl of oatmeal. It's a great, great scene. Um, uh, where pride prevents him from that, uh, that, uh, that connection. Um, a, a, a part that we're not going to see because it's buried in the middle of the film um, and just we'll be moving around a lot anyway. Uh, there's one point where in the parable uh, told by the movie where some of this excruciating vulnerability that she mentions I think happens. The one place where Brad Pitt's character is vulnerable and obviously this is a spoiler alert where um, his brother Craig Sheffers, uh, the older brother, um, he's, she, he's fallen in love with a girl and, uh, and, and, and he has to take um, her brother fishing, um, and he's kind of a jerk, et cetera, and so forth. And, uh, and he's like, well, you got, you're supposed to help him, right? Um, he's like, how can I help him? He didn't like to fish. Um, and then Brad Pitt's character, talking about himself in a thin, thinly veiled part, well, maybe what he likes is that somebody is trying to help him. Now, that's the closest he gets to being vulnerable, and that was, um, that was the closest he gets to his own crucifixion. That was the closest he gets to his own excruciation. Um, it's the unraveling of a life. Um, so the question is, where is God at work? How does he work in that type of family? Which, uh, in a group this size, of course, there's going to be a lot of parallels. Um, how does he work in your family? How does he work in my family? How does he work in the relationship between two brothers? How does he work in a relationship between a parent and a child? How does, how does he work? That's what we're asking. So, um, so any comments? That's a good place for a pause um, before we move to the movie proper. Any thoughts?
Let me turn the lights on just for a minute, Trent. Um, Gil, do you think it's possible that uh, the, the, the dad, the, the preacher, is Tom Scarrett? That's right, that's right. Doesn't, doesn't he kind of have a, a, enough uh, shame for, 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 for the whole family? For the whole family, absolutely. Um, I mean, he's kind of like, he's, he's, he's the guy carrying the wheelbarrow. Uh, you know, and, and he's, he's got that love and won't let go of it. Yeah. Like. He um he is the law. Um, good segue, because I want to read a little bit from um, the book I mentioned last week, This American Gospel, which describes that, um, that condemnation always follows the law. And Tom Skerritt, un, 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 and he's not, he's not a bad man. He's a Presbyterian minister. He's, he's, he's good-intentioned, well-intentioned. Uh, but he is the law. That's not, and he's not, he's not to blame for Brad Pitt's you know, ultimate death and demise. Um, uh, absolutely. No connection, because you cannot connect to the law. As Luther famously said, and I think it's been picked up recently on the, on maybe even our website, um, did the law die for me? <laughs> no, the, the law was the instrument of my death. Um, Christ died for me. Um, uh, the law is not our bedfellow. Um, we are in Christ. We are not in the law. But that's, well, that's not an aside at all. It's right in the middle of all this. Some themes. Remember, we read in Romans 7, um, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and died. I'm kind of framing the, uh, the clips they're going to watch. Um, as I mentioned, I believe the movie is a parable of freedom and bondage. Um, Paul is Brad Pitt's character's name, the younger brother. Um, there's a point at which Robert Redford, the, the narrator, uh, the voice of the older brother, says, Paul was standing there free like a work of art. Um, so there's the, the word freedom, like a work of art. Just a few moments before in the film, Brad Pitt, Paul, says, I'll never leave Montana, brother. Um, I'm in prison. I'm bound. I'm here. Um, I'm not free. Uh, so he's yet bound to that which would kill him. And he's also an alcoholic, and he's way behind in the big stud poker game at Lolo's, the speakeasy out, out in the middle of nowhere, where, where uh, that's ultimately where he dies, because he, he's got this huge debt. Um, so there's all these images of freedom and bondage. Even the well-meaning um, father who teaches them, we're going to look at this part. It's one of the best symbols, I think, in the movie of the metronome, you know, the, tick, the thing for, that helps you uh, play the piano, I guess, mostly. That's how they learn how to fly fish. Um, when I first fly fished, uh, that's, uh, that's what I thought you were supposed to do. It's in a four-count rhythm between ten and two. And it's this great scene. I mean, if you like to fish, I mean, you're going to start crying just for like one thing I do. Um, uh, that's, that's the law, you know, between 10 and 2. Not 9.30 and 2.30, 10 and 2. It's got to stay there. Um, and you're going to see him break out of his father's instruction. Um, so apart from the law, apart from his father, apart from the rigid control uh, of the commandments, mostly through his father, at least that's what I want to highlight. There's other things too. The omnipresent should, must, and ought. Brad Pitt's character becomes a master, free from his father's control, where he reaches to a point of being beautiful, of art. That's one of the ways it's described. Um, as if he belonged to another. That comes from, from Romans 7, verse 4. Or as if he died from that which held him captive. That comes from verse 6 in Romans 7. But then, as soon as he stepped off the river, as it were, uh, he was immediately back into his prison. Immediately back into everything which bound him. He returned to living in the flesh. Again, this is from Romans 7 seeing his sinful passions aroused by the law at work in his members to bear fruit from death. As Fitzsimmons Allison famously, and I think very insightfully said, um, speaking to Brad Pitt's um, 
alcoholism in this movie. Uh, he had all sorts of choices. He wanted a boiler maker at one point in the movie. He wanted beer in another. He wanted um, bourbon in another. He just couldn't choose not to drink. So he was bound to that which ultimately killed him. Um, so, uh, let me read this because then we're going to watch the movie and then have some time to uh, do it. This is Ethan Richardson from Mockingbird. Um, I mentioned this last time. Great book. Read it last weekend. Um, worth worth your time. It's based on um, something I've never heard but I've heard of, Ira Glass's um, This American Life, hence the title This American Gospel. One of the, uh, this is from the first chapter, in fact, one of the episodes from This American Life is uh, a guy in New York City um, gets his first apartment and he's so happy uh, uh, he thinks it's uh, uh, he thinks he's finally arrived. Um, he thinks it's the best thing that's ever happened to him, et cetera, and so forth. And then he's watching The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. I can't. I guess it's The Bachelorette. Um, you know, I watch that all the time. Uh, watches The Bachelorette and he's like, Oh my God, that's that's my facade. Wait, that's my row of mailboxes. That's my hallway. And and one of the characters, one of the bachelors, or is that what they're called? One of the guys who's trying to get to The Bachelorette lives in his building. And he realizes that it's not his apartment, but it's one right on his floor, and so it's a mirror. And he's like, my apartment is now being judged by everybody in America through this one woman, the Bachelorette. And remember, he thought his pad, his apartment, was, was, was the best thing that ever happened to him. But suddenly, this guy gets dropped, if that's the right word, on the Bachelorette. Doesn't get a rose, I guess, on the Bachelorette. Is that right? Yeah. Um, see, I'm married. Um, uh, that's for you, Mamie. Um, doesn't get a rose because um, because mainly the, the the bachelorette thinks his apartment's a dump, and the guy was like, his apartment's so much better than mine, and yet it was a dump. So what does that make me? So the law, the law of my apartment, which I thought was great, is a dump. Read Romans seven. Um, apart from the law, uh, he was alive until. The bachelorette came in and pronounced judgment and said, this is a dump. He thought he was, he, was, he was alive. He had had a life that he had never had. And now suddenly, as soon as the commandment came, sin sprang to life and he died. And so that's the context that then Ethan says this. The law, and that's going to be Tom Skerritt or the father that I'm kind of pointing out. The law is shorthand here for an accusing standard of performance. Whenever the law is coming... Condemnation comes close behind. The law, anything that says should, ought, must, and expectation, anything else. Condemnation comes close behind. Whenever an expectation stands before us, we are either, I think this is really brilliant, we are either condemned by our failure before it, or we become condemnors in our fulfillment of it. So one way or another, say I, I, I fulfill the law of I've got to have a great apartment. Well now, I'm condemning everybody else who doesn't have it. Just because I'm, I walk into your house and I think, you know, well, you know, obviously mine's not, I don't have this. And so I'm condemned by it. But I walk into somebody else's house and I'm, I'm the condemnor. It's like, well, I've got this and you don't. And so we're always doing this. The law, where the law is, condemnation in one way or another always follows. Um, the law is unfeeling. It tolerates no excuses. It accepts no shortcuts. The law is good in that it proffers a good standard. You shouldn't smoke, love one another, spend only what you have, etc. But it is received as condemnation when one finds oneself incapable of fulfilling it. It is for this reason, our eventual and consistent failures, that the law is condemnation's prerequisite. Jorge, the guy with the apartment, feels it doubly, and then he quotes Ira Glass. 
um, Ira Glass, of all people. And at that moment, Jorge gets this flash that he's not really doing uh, all that well. His apartment is kind of a dump compared to this guy on TV. Plus, he's watching Trisha Rain, the Bachelorette, looking uncomfortable in his apartment on national TV. In fact, she bails on the guy, and it all sort of goes to hell for Jorge. Things don't seem to be so shiny. So, with that idea that the law is always there and condemnation always follows, um, let's bounce around a little bit in some of the movie. Any thoughts before we, we spend 10 or 15 minutes looking at, at a really good-looking film? Any thoughts? Um, this is, uh, obviously, um, this is Brad's Pitt character over here on the right and the, the older brother on the left, and uh, some scenes from their childhood. And if Paul and I listen very carefully, all our lives, we might hear those words. Sorry. Even so, Paul and I probably received as many hours of instruction in fly fishing as we did in all other spiritual matters. As a Presbyterian, my father believed that man by nature was a damn mess, and that only by picking up God's rhythms were we able to regain power and beauty. To him, all good things, trout as well as eternal salvation, come by grace, and grace comes by art, and art does not come easy. So grace is art, but art is earned. So my brother and I learned to cast Presbyterian stuff on a metronome. You gotta love this clay. He began each session with the same instruction. Casting is an art that is performed on a four-count rhythm between ten o'clock and two o'clock. If he had had his way, nobody who did not know how to catch a fish would be allowed to disgrace the fish by catching it. <laughs> In its own way, that's such a prison. So it was with my formal education as well. Each weekday, while my father worked on his Sunday sermon, I attended the school of the writer who played. He taught nothing but reading and writing, and, being a Scot, believed that the art of writing lay in thrift. spent their days at Missoula Elementary, I stayed home and learned to write the American language. Again, half as long. Fast forward a little bit. 
That's young Brad Pitt, obviously. But it was a tough world, too. Even as children, we understood that and admired it. And of course, we had to test it. I knew I was tough because I had been bloodied in battle. secret place inside him. He simply knew he was tougher than anyone alive. Grace will not be set until I win this game. You'll hear. Man has been eating God's oats. <clears throat> For a thousand years, it's not the place of an eight-year-old boy to change that tradition. I love that line. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's fueling this toughness, which comes from somewhere, you know, a, a secret place within him. It's not excruciating vulnerability. And so disconnection becomes entrenched. Look at that. Two protagonists just, just playing it out. So it goes forward, they steal a rowboat um, as teenagers, and they go over these uh, really dangerous falls, and they, uh, they make it, and this is a, a fight scene right afterwards. It's where the book... Let me see where I go. 25, 20. Um, the book actually didn't go there, and I think it's a, a diversion that the movie improves on the book. That was the only time um, we ever fought. Perhaps we wondered afterwards which one of us was tougher. But if boyhood questions aren't answered before a certain point, they can't be raised again. So we returned to being gracious to one another, as the church wall suggested. Gracious, in this sense, is ordered, where it's still by the wall, where they're still in a straight line right down the river. Because here's, here's a poignant turn in the movie. Brad Pitt's mad because his brother caught a fish, 
What is he doing? He's leaving. Freedom on the river. Everywhere else he's bound. His dad looks up. The narrator comes in. It's off count. It's off rhythm. It's outside the bounds of the law. I then saw something remarkable. For the first time, Paul broke free of our father's instruction into a rhythm all his own. That's how my cast looked, Clay. There's that scene where the Lord's been particularly good to me. Any comments thus, thus far before we go to the end? So what I'm trying to do is just set up this, uh, this idea of freedom and bondage, a well-meaning father, um, uh, yet still, still the law, still very much um, within something as, as poetic and as beautiful as fly fishing is performed on a four-count rhythm between ten and two, etc. and so forth. That metronome is still very much tick, 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 tick. You cannot leave. And it's a prison. That may be a pleasant and very beautiful prison in the middle of Missoula, Montana, but it's a prison nonetheless. Um, and the, one, the first time where it was noteworthy to both the, the, the older brother and the father, Paul, um, remember who's hell-bent, uh, broke free from his father's, what was his word, father's instruction, and, uh, and moved into a rhythm all on his own. That comes all the way to the bottom where the, we pass through the sign where um, Paul repeatedly begins to, to, uh, to be unhelpable and he has that one moment of vulnerability where he says maybe what he likes, maybe what I like is that somebody is trying to help me in the pursuit of the older brother. Um, so this is um, fast forwarding. Um, the older brother goes away to Dartmouth. Um, doesn't, so he leaves Montana for six years. He comes back the last summer together, which is the summer that Brad Pitt's character dies. Uh, they're, they're reconnecting a little bit and kind of working all this out. And this is the last fishing trip between the, uh, the two brothers and the father. Um, so we'll see where we can pick that up. Yeah, uh, why, why is it that the Brad Tooth's character is bound by the father's instruction, but the other brother isn't? Uh, well, they're both bound. Um, it's Brad Pitt's character who is starting to pull out. Um, the other brother's just resigned to live in it? It seems that way. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's an imperfect parable, but it's a parable. And it's a parable that's a good parable because it doesn't, doesn't tie everything together. There's not a neat and happy ending. Um, and the, the father who's a minister has a, a last sermon, which I think is, uh, is nice, but it's ultimately wrong. And I'm going to sort of mention that in a moment, um, where it's not, it's not finally redemptive. Um, uh, part of this question is just, what, why are they disconnected? Why is this family not functioning? Why... Uh, even within a well-meaningness, because this is us. We are screwing our, if you want to look at parenting, we are screwing our children up, and we don't even know it. We can't not not be the law. We can't not not be condemnatory, either um, because we condemn them for not being enough, or we condemn them because they're too much. Um, we can't not do it. We have to have somebody else be that word of freedom. And that's where, ultimately, I think his dad, in his last sermon, is wrong. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, Gail, can't you draw a contrast between the father and this movie on the one hand who refuses to show vulnerability mm -hmm. with his children mm -hmm. versus Christ who did the exact opposite? Absolutely. You look at the way Christ emptied himself uh, and 
and was excruciatingly, you know, cru- crucifixionally, trying to make a word, uh, vulnerable. Absolute, absolutely, Jim. 100% right. Um, the ultimate failure of the Father. The ultimate failure of me. <laughs> we can't do that. I can't die for my children for their salvation. I wish I could. I'd die for their life, but not for their salvation. Why did, he, um, why did the Father give in on the oatmeal thing when he didn't eat it? I don't know. Well, we don't know what happened. I mean, they made it. He made Brad Pitt one all the way through to dinner. Say it was lunch and it was still there at dinner. What happened after that? I don't know. Um, you know, who hasn't sat there? Or I, let me put it that way. I've sat there, and you're like going through your head. It's like I'm gonna open his mouth and pour it in. And you're like, what am I thinking? You know, really, really. You know, I mean, what, what power do we have? You know, and and Brad Pitt as an eight-year-old figured that out. You really have no power over me. Mm-hmm. You, I, I can, I can beat you. I can do this. So, so here's the end. Towards the end, we're not going to go all the way to the bottom. So let me say what's happening. Um, so this is uh, the older brother is going to ask this girl to marry him, and, and he just got a, a position. It's Norman McLean, the guy who wrote the book. Uh, it's an autobiographical story. Uh, he's going to teach at the University of Chicago, so he's about to move to Chicago. They're fishing for the last time. Um, Brad Pitt realizes that his brother is getting free. So a little bit of what you're saying, Clay. He's, 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 he's at least leaving Montana. He's getting outside of his father's instruction, et cetera, and so forth. And Brad Pitt, a little bit of vulnerability here. Um, you can see him turn away. Brad Pitt actually does pretty well in this scene. Um, uh, plays it out where, uh, I think, a, a, a statement that could be easily lost, um, I'll never leave Montana, brother. He, he knows he's going to die. Brad Pitt does. He knows that his life... Uh, as he understands it, is on its way to its end. Um, and I think the older brother does too, that he's, he's really leaving his brother behind to die. Um, and so that's where this kind of picks up. But he catches the last great fish, and, he, uh, and he's beautiful. But then it's very tragic. I'm going to ask Jesse to marry me. death sentence. Watch the father reach for the, the his son here, Craig Sheffer's character. And watch when it happens. I think it's a pretty well-directed scene. So he sees Brad Pitt
I didn't see that until this weekend. He sees Brad Pitt, the lost son. He can do nothing to help him. He's moved to reach out and connect to somebody. And he blindly sort of gropes. And I think that's really well done. So. Freedom from law, like a work of art. And I knew just as surely, just as clearly, that life is not a work of art. And that the moment could not last. He goes on and describes having to tell his parents that Brad Pitt had been beaten by a blood of a revolver, et cetera, and so forth. And his father 
right before he died, preached one more sermon and said this. Turn the lights on if you want, Trent. Um, and this is where I think he's wrong, and then I'm going to sort of leave it to where, where, where it's right, where, where gospel would rest. His father's last sermon, shortly before his own death, um, uh, Tom Skerritt speaking, we, were, we are willing to help, Lord, but what if anything is needed? For it is true that we can seldom help those closest to us. Either we don't know what part of ourselves to give, or, more often than not, the part we have to give is not wanted. And so it is, uh, and so, and so it is with those who we live with and know best who elude us. But we can still love them. We can love completely without complete understanding. And although that's, that's, that's a half truth, I would even say it's a seven-eighths truth. It's not a complete truth, because he's still putting himself in an active sense that we can love completely. He couldn't love his son completely. He couldn't love his son without condemnation. Um, where we are bound to the law, whether we like it or not, and we, we are a voice of condemnation for even those whom we love the most. Now, that's a heavy, depressing word. But the good word is, and you can just turn it around, sometimes syntax is just this simple. It's not that we can love completely, even without complete understanding. We can be loved completely, even as we do not understand being loved. Now, that's different. That's a different word. We can be loved completely, even as we do not understand being loved. Even that word of, you are a fine fisherman. You know, you could play that out, and that can be either a word of freedom, uh, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased, or it can be a word of condemnation. Well, now I've earned your, your accolade. But next time the leader breaks, next time I don't catch it, next time I, you know, it becomes a word of law. We can't escape that word of condemnation. But we can be loved completely by the one who, who could die for us. Um, and that's, that's where this ultimately is a parable, and it leads us right to the cross, but it's not ultimately redemptive. Um, there's more to say, but I think I'll stop. One comment? We're way over. Yeah, Marilyn? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, where he comes out, and you can see the joy in the Father's face. So it's true. And it's all in the river. The river is obviously a very strong uh, metaphor. Well, let me pray. Lord, where I'm wrong, correct me. Where, um, where there was something that was helpful, uh, something of you, strengthen that um, for the sake of, uh, of the one who died for us, um, and in whom there is now no condemnation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, y'all.